Ultimately, I think that the winning financial planning firms are those that position themselves as employers of choice. And you can only do that with momentum. If you don't have it, then every hire you make will be accidental, not strategic, and you're going to have more losses than wins in the process. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today, I'm talking with Mark Tabersian, the CEO of Advisor Solutions at Bank of New York Mellon in Pershing. In this interview with Mark, we talk about the evolution of career paths within financial planning, elevating the profession by changing the language that we use, and the importance of reverse mentoring. Up next, we'll dive into how Mark has seen the financial planning profession change over the years, why each phase of your career as a new planner is important to your development, and how there's never just one way to grow in this profession. Well, we are here at FPA's annual conference, and I have Mark Diversion here, your Pershing Advisor Solutions CEO. Is that? That's correct. On your session last night, uh, you were talking about career paths and the work that you've been doing with the CFP board. You've been around more than probably most of the listeners on this podcast. How have you seen career paths evolve within the financial planning profession? That's a great question. Thanks, Hannah, for having me on your program. Uh, this profession has evolved in so many ways. Uh, uh, when I started uh, back when the Buttonwood Agreement was signed, uh, this was primarily an, an investment-forward business. And I think over the last uh, 20 years, it emerged to more planning-forward business. And now, as we look forward, it's going to be more of an experience-forward uh, business, meaning people will emphasize the experience even more. Uh, the good news, at least in the United States, is that planning has become core to the way in which advisors think about how they can transform the lives of their clients. And the reason it isn't as much uh, of an emphasis on investing anymore as it is an emphasis on financial choices uh, really makes this a very powerful uh, career opportunity for other people. It's interesting. You talk about that shift from investments to planning, and you you have a much broader perspective, you know, because of your role. Do you see the majority of investment shops moving towards financial planning, or do you, how do you see kind of have we gotten there where financial planning has been has been adopted by much of the industry and profession? It's a struggle, to be perfectly honest. I think that people follow their DNA, and uh, for those who are more investment oriented, they tend to look at financial planning as a value add. But those who come with a planning orientation think of it as value, not as an ad. And this, this is a critical sort of discipline that people think about. I also think that uh, many people contemplate this notion of financial planning as a means to generate a deeper relationship or to uh, get share of wallet or do with those other things. And so if there isn't that true motivation around, uh, around what, what planning is as a process, then a number of firms won't do it. That said, uh, I think that many people from the very large uh, brokerage firms to the insurance companies to the, uh, to the smaller firms are recognizing that this is what clients want, is a guide. They want a Sherpa. And certainly early in somebody's uh, life cycle, it, isn't, it couldn't be about investing at all because they don't have assets. What they have is the opportunity to accumulate, and that's where a financial planner really plays a part. One of the conversations I had here was with um, a gentleman from Australia, and, and kind of how they've seen the shift away from you know commissions and AUM much more to a fee-for-service or financial planning fee. Do you see that trend, and obviously not as extreme because of the re regulatory environment, there, but do you see a trend going away from investment management fees to financial planning fees, or do you think that investment management piece will always be there? There is a big difference between uh, what is an obvious choice and what is an impediment to uh, transformation. So uh, it would seem logical that, uh, that you would pay for the value you're being delivered uh, and for whatever service is there. Uh, yet the profession is so tied to asset management fees that it's really difficult to see this trend happening anytime soon. Uh, in fact, this is the only, the only business I know where the client pays for the value they bring, not the value the provider brings. And so this, this is a real dilemma in the business. The economics, however, of charging on an asset management fee uh, also make it difficult for people to make the change, especially in the upmarket like we've seen today. That said, according to our studies, roughly 30% of 
uh, RIAs at least charge a fee other than an asset management fee. It might be a retainer or a project or even an hourly rate fee in some cases. And it wouldn't surprise me to see many move to a subscription model eventually. But that that's not here today and it probably won't happen for at least another five years. And whatever occurs in the marketplace might dictate that. And so when you say whatever occurs in the market, marketplace, if like a market decline, is that kind of what you're meaning? And how would, that, how would you see that impacting? I think a market uh, cataclysm of some sort could uh, transform the way in which people provide advice. I think new entrants into the market, so from a competitive standpoint, uh, could totally disrupt it, much like we're seeing no commissions now among custodians as being a disruptor. Uh, and we can talk about that if you'd like. Uh, there are elements of disruption that occur. I think the third thing is that the, the demographics of the client base uh, may be demanding a change. And so this is still fundamentally a business built around boomers, both in terms of those practicing and those absorbing the services. But as they, as they leave the, the landscape uh, and more people are saying, prove to me your value, I think that others will come up with that idea. So your presentation last night was on career paths. Yeah. So how have, have there always been career paths within financial planning or the investment, the world, or are they, are they really getting developed and formed now? Kind of what's been the history? How long has this conversation been going on? Career paths, the way that uh, it's emerging is relatively new phenomenon. Career paths in the past were based on your level of production. So you might move from, uh, from a rookie broker to uh, to, an, uh, to a, an assistant vice president, to a vice president, to a director, to a managing director. It wasn't literally a career path, though. It was more uh, a badge of honor that you were moving to a higher level of revenue generation, and that's what people would value. So when we talk about career paths now, as we did last night, the whole notion is what do you master at each level, and how do we train to that, and how do we recognize that you've accomplished uh, something at each level so that we can move you up both in terms of responsibility and impact on the business. That's a that's a major difference in the thinking. What are the different stages that you see in a career path? And, and obviously it's, there's more than one path. Well, it depends if your, uh, if your course is going to be to be a financial advisor, uh, to be an operations person, or ultimately to be the leader and manager of a business. But let's assume for a minute that your ambition is to be a practicing financial planner. Uh, it is quite clear that if we can establish five rungs of the ladder, that within each rung there's movement. So uh, it could take, for example, in the first rung, which would be an analyst, that, uh, that your job is to master the job. And for some people, they can do that in six months. In other cases, it might take three years. So this is knowing the technology, knowing the planning process, uh, becoming a CFP, not that immediately, but at least studying for the CFP, uh, really learning how the business works and how the process works and all of those elements. So the sooner one can absorb that information, they can move to that next level, which is, uh, which is a, a paraplanner, let's say, for the terminology. Uh, generally speaking, uh, it's going to take someone between 8 and 12 years to, uh, to be fully baked as a prospective partner of an advisory firm, but each of those stages, uh, at least in the five rungs, become clearer over time. And so last night you were talking about one of the most overlooked career stages in that kind of rung. Can you talk more about that and why it's so critical to the development of a financial planner? Yeah, the overlooked stage I referred to was the service advisor. So that's the third rung uh, of, the, of the ladder. And the reason this is important is because most founders of financial planning firms have grown their business out of survival. They just built their networks and, uh, and generated business in order to survive. And then momentum carried them to be, in many cases, quite substantial and quite wealthy themselves and quite fortunate having built a, built a value, a business of value. The, the challenge for them is that when they recruit young people in the business, uh, they don't really focus on the development of those individuals. And one of two mistakes happen. Either one, they say, from the beginning, you're, you have to go find clients, and that's not likely to happen for somebody fresh out of university. Or two, they put them in a service role, in a planning role, and assume that they're a technician for the rest of their life. But if properly developed, what happens is that an individual realizes that they are growing as a profession much like they would a lawyer or an accountant. 
And part of their responsibility is not only to be a great technician and a great empathetic human in dealing with clients and planning issues, but also a meaningful part of the community and the business where they can drive revenue into it. So the service advisor role is not only training people how to be a leader of client relationships, but how to recognize and ultimately develop new client relationships with the firm. It's not in the same vein as the old get a phone book and start to sell, uh, but it's in the notion of you have to be present in the marketplace in order for new business to come to you. That's a responsibility for anybody who wants to be a partner in a firm. You know, so it brings an interesting question um, along along the lines of ownership, especially with younger planners or newer planners, really. You say it's a responsibility of everybody in the firm to help bring in business to the firm. Should people be compensated when they bring in that business or how kind of how do you view that? It's a great question. Uh, if, if you assume that compensation uh, is important for driving behavior, then I guess some firms would do it. Uh, I happen to think otherwise. It's never been proven in my mind that money motivates. What money can demotivate uh, the reality is that creating an environment where motivated people can flourish is a, a bigger driver. And so if you just recognize that being responsible for attracting business is part of your responsibility based on your role and relationship, then separate compensation may not be necessary because you'll get your reward in other ways. Your compensation will continue to rise. Uh, some firms would actually uh, presume that you have to be coin-operated in order to do the right thing. And I, I just don't believe that. If you're, if you're a, a practicing professional within a firm, then you should just know that you have a responsibility as part of the team. The second part I would make is that it's rare, frankly, that uh, an advisor or an individual uh, brings in business on his or her own effort. Usually it's part of a team. It uh, could be because the firm has developed a brand, uh, because the firm delivers an incredible experience that you operate as an ensemble or as a team anyhow. And so the notion of one person getting compensated for a new client coming in seems to not recognize the value of the entire enterprise. Often in my mind, and perhaps I'm being naive on this, has been, you know, once you start bringing in clients, that's when the ownership conversation kind of gets to the table. And so you're saying that's really not necessary, not necessarily correlated. At what point do you transition from being an employee to an owner? At like what point, what, at what, what do you need to have developed before you can, can be having that conversation? So in the well-managed firms, the definition of success within uh, an owner, uh, within a partnership, is, is, um, is be- it becomes quite clear. Uh, so two things have to happen. The first thing is that the firm has to be of a size uh, where they can justify dilution of ownership. And this, so this threshold is the firm big enough to afford to add another partner is a question that's overlooked. Uh, and another reason why you have to think about growing the business. The second is, do you have uh, all of the qualities that we look for in an owner? This is, in, this is important that we think about uh, things like, are they technically able? Uh, Do they uh, add value to the culture? Do they demonstrate passion and integrity? Uh, Are they impacting the lives of others and developing other people within the firm? Are they accountable? Do they demonstrate the behaviors that are are there? I think oftentimes uh, people come into the business and look at partnership and they say, well, you know, I have these credentials and I've been in business this long, so it's now time to be partner. And that um, that would be like saying, well, I've implemented a financial plan and I've saved a lot of money, so I'm now financially independent. There's, there's more to that definition than just having experience and credentials that would qualify you to be a partner. You know, it's interesting because I've been hearing in, in some of my peer-to-peer conversations, people at firms where people are being brought on as partners because they've checked off all the boxes of the career path, but maybe they're not... They're finding that just is more than just checking off the boxes that's needed. Yeah, I, I think that one thing that people realize is that, uh, that individuals who have a toxic personality uh, may have the ability to check off all the boxes, but they could actually have a negative impact on the enterprise if they're brought in as partner. And that is a tradition in the business is that we've tended to ignore bad behavior uh, if people are performing uh, in the business role the way they want. 
Uh, I just don't think that's a very prudent way in which to build an enduring business uh, as a way to think about it. So yes, uh, certain boxes have to be checked, uh, including the ones that really demonstrate how people think about making this a business to last, not just how to recognize your individual contribution. What is that size that you see as best practice before, you know, before you're diluting too much of that ownership? It's unique to the firm. I mean, there's a big difference uh, between having a firm in Wichita versus Manhattan. Yeah. And just the cost of doing business is different. Uh, not that there's anything superior or inferior about either one, but just that cost is a factor. So I'll give you an example of how, uh, uh, how I experienced it when I was a principal in an accounting firm. Uh, when I sold my consulting firm to uh, Moss Adams, uh, there were about 75 partners in Moss Adams, and the average revenue per partner was, uh, was around $700,000. Uh, when I left, uh, the firm had about 320 partners, and the average revenue per partner was about $1.5 million. So from an from a executive committee standpoint, what you're looking at is, are you generating enough revenue per partner, profit per partner, revenue per client, profit per part, uh, client, in order to uh, make sense of this? So the benchmarking study that uh, Pershing sponsors uh, that's produced by Investment News has this data in there that advisory firms look at very closely to see how they're tracking relative to their peers and whether they're showing real growth. Now, one of the things that we recognize is uh, many firms uh, have uh, delusions of greatness because the market has given them great lift in terms of their revenue and assets. Uh, the reality is that it's the market that's doing it organically. It's not happening. So you have to sort of understand those dynamics to uh, know whether you can get to it. So I think that one of the first question that an advisory firm would have to think about is, what is my revenue per partner now? And uh, at what level do I have to be to minimize the impact of dilution uh, on my ownership uh, by admitting another partner? And so you can set growth targets based on that. So as young planners and new planners are stepping into these firms, what are characteristics that would indicate that they should maybe not become partners of these firms? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there... Uh, there are several things that I would say uh, dictate uh, individual thresholds. So the first uh, qualification I would say is financial contribution. That's not just how much business they bring in, but how much business they manage, or put another way, how much of the business they manage. So they might be ha having a management role that could be there. Uh, the second would be uh, their impact on the development of other talent in the firm is, uh, I have a general philosophy that if you haven't trained your replacement, then I can't possibly move you on because now I have a gap in two places and I've got to think about that. So to what extent are you developing other people and really ensuring that the firm will continue and you're functionally training your replacement? Uh, the third is uh, how are you demonstrating technical competence? Uh, are, you, uh, are you continuing to learn and master your profession and committing to understanding more and becoming... Uh, 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 more uh, disciplined around complex situations, that becomes it. And then the, 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 the fourth component uh, that's, that's core to this is whether or not you are additive to the culture. So uh, do people like you? Do they like working with you? Are you demonstrating responsibility? Uh, do clients uh, seem to respect the way in which you do things? So at a minimum, those would be four things that I would tend to look at. You know, planners who've been in the business seven, ten years are getting offered ownership in these firms and they're looking around and, you know, it, it's not just one or two owners. It's, you know, many owners. Um, and it's a really interesting conversation where not everybody wants to be an owner. And so can you still have a viable and vibrant career path without taking on ownership? The answer is yes, you can. Uh, but I think that there are other questions that you want to get into. Okay. Uh, why is ownership uh, so unappealing? Mm. Well, what is behind that? To me, it's, it's a real question as to how people perceive success. And it may be a lifestyle choice or it may be a lifestyle circumstance that is saying, I just don't want that commitment. But I think people assume that, uh, that becoming an owner means that you're going to have to work twice as hard as you do now. 
and perhaps the reward isn't there. And if that's the case, and that's a firm that is probably dysfunctional, uh, that, uh, that good partnerships create operating leverage by pushing work down to other people. The second part of this, though, is uh, you may choose to be a cog in the wheel and not the wheel. And, uh, and there shouldn't be any judgment about that, but there also shouldn't be any expectation that your compensation is going to increase materially because there becomes uh, an expense tied to people who are, who are the cog. Uh, and, uh, you know, I want people to be seen as an asset on which to get a return and not uh, a cost to be managed. Yeah. But there comes a point where we say, you know, uh, we can, you have a physical limit to how much work you can do as, a, as an individual contributor to the business. Uh, we can't generate enough revenue in what you're doing. And there comes a point where it's getting too expensive uh, that your income just can't rise at that level. So I worry about whether or not people will be fulfilled uh, recognizing those limitations. Well, and I know one that just the fear of the commitment of becoming an owner of the firm. I mean, they feel like their career is now tied to that firm, which I guess it, it's true. It's kind of true. It's what they want. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's a fascinating subject. I hear it. I hear it often as well. And I, I'm just curious what's behind that. You know, I think, I think that we have, all of us are subject to this, but I think we tend to underestimate uh, our own impact on organizations. And that aversion to responsibility is a really curious trait. I don't want to call it a quality. It's a really curious trait. And I think sometimes we just have to look inside ourselves and say, what got us to this point that we don't want to have any responsibility or obligation to the business or the people we work with? You should have a psychologist on here to answer that question, <laughs> but I find it a really curious thing. Well, you know, it's interesting. The other thing that I've heard from people is just from a risk management standpoint, they're like, my salary is coming from them, and now we're having to invest, all, you know, the extra income back into it instead of, you know, their portfolio. But again, that's a business owner risk, right? That's what it means to... True, uh, but you know, if, if you're doing this properly, you're not just having a concentrated investment, you're diversifying outside of the business. I mean, I can use my own example, a, a substantial portion of my compensation comes in stock uh, yeah. in uh, Bank of New York, which is our parent company, and, uh, but uh, the amount of the bonus is also dictated by the performance of Bank of New York as a company, uh, and my job is there at Bank of New York. So it's concentrated, but uh, most of my wealth is not within Bank of New York. It's outside of it. So, uh, I mean, financial planners are advising business owners uh, and business executives all the time, and they're saying, uh, reduce your concentration and think about how you manage it. I just find it curious that people don't apply the same discipline to their own lives and how they manage for financial independence. So the other part of it is that, in, especially in closely held businesses, but it could be true in any type of enterprise, you have a reward for labor and you have a reward for ownership. And uh, when you are getting a reward for ownership, that means you're getting true operating leverage, is that you're, you're making money off of other people's labor. And I don't want to make that sound as a pejorative, but that's, that's the truth of business ownership is imagine the greatness of that is you invest in a business and you get a multiple of your own hours in return. And what you can do with that is quite incredible. Even if you're not, even if you're not a coin operated, even if money is not your driver, uh, the fact is that if, if curing uh, the world's ills is your driver, Imagine what you could do if you had a greater pocketbook to impact that. Mm -hmm. So it's a means to an end. So how do you see these investment firms? You know, we're at 2019 right now. Do you see, I hear some people talk about mass consolidation. I hear some people talk about, you know, we look at places like the XYPN where you're having, you know, the thousand members now, a thousand of these solo practitioner, almost micro firms. What do you see as the trend for, for financial planning and investment management in this regard? Well, I think that you're uh, recognizing that there are several models that are occurring. And I think that uh, uh, the XY network is, planning network is a good example of uh, somewhat of a franchise model because there are literally scores of financial planners who don't want to work with other people. And sometimes it's no coincidence that the feelings are reciprocated. <laughs> but, you know, that's a choice you make. Uh, 
I think other people would write, like to be in a larger organization that provides access to resources uh, and opportunity to build wealth inside of a business that can be critical. And there's also that social aspect that is driven by it. Uh, so I think that there will continue to be consolidation. This fundamentally is a profession comprised of small businesses. Even a practice with a billion dollars of assets is only generating eight to $10 million of revenue. The SBA defines a small service business as uh, anything under $100 million of revenue and 1,000 employees. So that's just about every financial planning practice in the country. Uh, I think consolidation is inevitable because uh, the founders of these firms haven't adequately prepared for their succession, and clients are going to be left looking for someone else if, if they don't deal with that question. I think that the economics of scale uh, uh, argue for some degree of consolidation. I'm not suggesting every firm has to be 100 million, but I think you want to be of a size where you can invest in your growth and in your expertise and your development and your training of people. And ultimately, I think that the winning financial planning firms are those that position themselves as employers of choice. And you can only do that with momentum. If you don't have it, then uh, then Every hire you make will be accidental, not strategic, and you're going to have more losses than wins in the process. You say momentum. I hear you're getting new business, new clients, but I think maybe you mean something broader than that. Momentum uh, has many elements to it, and this is why I put such an emphasis on, on uh, critical mass, yeah. is that when you're of a size, and so an example of critical mass would be if you have redundancy at every position, if you are growing at a rate faster than the GDP, and if, uh, and if you are generating operating profitability after compensation, all expenses mm -hmm. in the range of 25%, uh, you're probably at critical mass as a business. Couple points there. One is you always have a backup plan if somebody goes down, and people don't go, go down. They, they retire, they die. Uh, they get sick. Uh, there are any number of things that cause people to disappear. You don't want to miss a beat uh, as a firm going through that. Uh, second, if you're not keeping pace with the growth in the economy, uh, chances are you're not keeping pace with the deaccumulation of your clients uh, in their assets and in their lives. And that becomes an issue. So the momentum is uh, how do you continue to keep those metrics in mind as you're driving growth? Mm -hmm. It says, looking forward, uh, I have to understand what I want to deliver to my clients, build an infrastructure to support it, and maintain a level of growth that allows me to sustain it. That's what you're functionally saying. And there are going to be consolidations, but there's going to still be a variety of different types of firms within yeah. the marketplace. Yeah. Like you don't see that. I think if everybody becomes the same kind of firm, then... Uh, you know, this is just stepward wives. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a, uh, I think people have to have a unique proposition in how they're yeah. building the business. I think the region of the country or the community in which they're in uh, will define that. The types of clients they're serving will define that. Not everybody's serving the ultra rich or the mass affluent. Uh, I think that, um, I think how you define the client experience uh, will uh, dictate that. I'm a little bit concerned with the nature of consolidation, however, in that I think that much of the consolidation is only about the transaction and not about the relationship. So if I were to define success in the consolidation model, it would be firms that know what year two and year three are going to look like and what full synergy and integration appears to be once that deal is fully consummated and integrated. That, that is going to define success. We don't really have examples of that yet. Here at FPA, the, their primary aim is to help elevate the profession that transforms lives through the power of financial planning. And so I'm curious, what do you see as the biggest challenges of really elevating financial planning to a true profession? Part of it is that, um, that we have to continue to elevate the level of training and education. Uh, I think, particularly in the RA side, that I think the uh, the ease of entry is too low, and I think we have to raise the, the barrier a little bit higher. And I think not just to be a CFP, but also uh, to be registered as an investment advisor. I think that that's something we have to think about. 
Uh, two, uh, as a profession, we have to get to critical mass that people say, uh, I am working with a financial planner, not that I'm working with an advisor who could in fact be something other than an advisor. Uh, it's just a nomenclature people use. I'd like to see more uh, purity in the terminology than exists today. Uh, I think three, we do have to replenish the profession with uh, relevant generations of people, but also other relevant demographics. Uh, this notion of, uh, of attracting more people to the business, more women, more people of color, uh, more faiths, uh, all of these elements really become important because they're extensions of the communities in which they live. And if, if, if you've never seen anybody in your community who's practiced in this business, you'll never think about it as a valuable resource. And so as an industry, it's a mandate that we address this question in real terms. The flip side of it is that we need to have more missionaries, if you will, in the planning profession who are really speaking about the power of transformation. When you use that, that slogan or that phrase yeah. about what defines the FPA, I'd like to see how that is implemented. How do we demonstrate that uh, we are truly impacting the lives of others? And how do we tell the story in a way that says, uh, it's not about whether or not you get a better return this year or, or last, but it's about you've helped people navigate their life choices and truly transform their, their economic freedom uh, from where they were before. And uh, so I, I think, you know, I would take a look at, at uh, churches that have been successful in recruiting new parishioners and say, uh, there's something about the spiritual message that works because somehow people feel transformed or enlightened or saved uh, uh, by what they do. And it may seem hokey, but there are, uh, there are real concepts that we can look to the outside world and say, it relates to what we do. And the good news is that uh, if, if we're successful, uh, many more lives will be transformed. I'd like to add though, I think we are beginning this process way too late. Uh, I think that our failure to uh, successfully implement financial literacy uh, at the elementary school, middle school, and high school level uh, is, is a tragedy for our country. Way too many people are retiring and are wholly or mostly dependent on Social Security. And that tells us as a country, as the largest economy in the world, that we have failed in so many ways, and that's a big one. Well, and I know that's a passion of yours is kind of that financial education and, and that literacy. It is. Uh, I, uh, I sponsored uh, my uh, former high school in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, a little town called Gladstone, uh, 5,000 people. Uh, it's not a big economy. It's a, uh, you know, uh, it's a typical Midwest little town. Uh, and it's now the only K through 12 financial literacy program in the entire state of Michigan. Uh, and the, the teacher uh, who is leading the program today has taught other teachers. And they do the summer camp for little kids. And I get these amazing notes from the kids and their parents saying how cool this was. I have examples of kids who never thought of finance as a, as a possible career choice and now are actually studying personal finance at university to decide to come into the career. So uh, I'm living and breathing it. And, uh, and it, it affects me emotionally when I see uh, the transformation that we can have on people's lives. And from my own standpoint, I know I can't change the world, but I can change a life. I think if every member of the FPA took that attitude, uh, this would be a real game changer for our business. I remember hearing somebody say once, if every CFP would bring in one more CFP, I mean, Honestly. the impact of that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that you said, and you know, one of our challenges as a profession was that you said that we need to raise the bar and, and, and the entry getting into it is almost too easy. And so I'm curious to hear more about that because I don't usually hear that. Well, I think that, um, I think that if people choose to start their own business, there are easy ways to do it. Uh, I think once you have your CFP, uh, the demand for people with, with, the, with the designation is extraordinarily high. Uh, I think that people are looking for jobs. Uh, if they're open to possibilities, we'll have no trouble getting hired by somebody. So, uh, so that's the good news. I think the ease of entry to be hired uh, is relatively simple. 
the issue that I'm talking about is the ease with which people can establish their own firms. I mean, obviously there's some costs, there's some cash flow that you have to think about, but just getting your uh, registration in and setting up your business is relatively easy. And frankly, if you're a solo practitioner in those cases, you're acting not only as the lead advisor, but the chief compliance officer and the chief risk manager within the business. And so that worries me uh, because you don't know all the people who are coming in and what that means for the business. Uh, so if you looked at other pro uh, professions like uh, becoming an accountant or becoming uh, an attorney or becoming a doctor and you're setting up your own practice, there still are standards of excellence that we have to be conscious of that I think we should begin mirroring when we look at it. I'd also like to have us think about the business side of financial planning a little bit more. Uh, it continues to disappoint me that, that a practice management is not uh, and it doesn't receive accreditation. I mean, there are programs around this conference where I say, my God, that's really valuable. How come they're not getting any CE for participation in those things when they're as critical to the endurance of a firm as anything? And so emphasizing that, the business of financial advice as well as the practice of financial advice is going to be critical to uh, our future as a business. One of the things that's been really interesting is when you look at, you know, when you get audited or, you know, when you either whether that's within your broker dealer, within your firms um, or by the state or the SEC, rarely do they ask questions about financial planning of what your assumptions are built into or how you're doing, yeah. how they're doing things. Is that part of what you're talking about, raising that bar, kind of those standards of care? That's a, that's a good example. I think that the regulators tend to uh, focus on products. They don't tend to focus on process. And I think that's a that's a really classic example of how we think about the business today. You know, as an example, in the UK, there's new regulation that will cause firms to think about uh, the emotional health of uh, financial professionals within the firm, and that managers are responsible for monitoring that. I mean, that's, that's a very uh, powerful and insightful way to think about our responsibility it goes way beyond the product and more towards uh, the way in which people are functioning in their daily lives. So I, I would love to see us uh, really think about those elements in greater terms. Uh, I mean, obviously in financial planning, it's a series of judgments. There are elements that are standardized, like the document um, collection process and the analysis can be it, but the notion of delivering real wisdom uh, and prudent advice, uh, not tied to product, is subject to a lot of tests that we need to consider. You know, how often, for example, do we see people impose their own values on the way in which you deliver advice? I heard a speaker earlier today talked about, do any of you have any big spenders for clients? And it was clearly a judgment that, uh, that they, you know, if people are big spenders, uh, that, that somehow they're living a, a, a double life or a bad life. But maybe that's the whole reason for making money is to achieve fulfillment in some other way. So why, why judge uh, unless it's egregious? But those are good examples of that. The RAA space gets a lot of attention, um, but there's big players out there outside of the RAA space, like the independent broker-dealers, the wirehouses. Do you see, how do you see the trends? Is, is, it, is business, are planners moving more towards that RAA space? Or where do you see kind of the flow within the financial planning profession? To give you some context for this, so BNY Mellon uh, is the largest custodian in the world. So $35 trillion of assets. We deal, we in fact are the custodian to the financial services industry. You're not, you're not one of the small businesses. We're not one of the small businesses, <laughs> but, but the point is that we touch almost every financial service firm yeah. uh, in this country and in many other countries. And so we see all the business models and they're all our clients. Uh, even our competitors are our clients. Uh, and so from our point of view, uh, we tend to be agnostic about the business model uh, and we would prefer that people were not uh, derogatory about other business models because they're, they're providing a surface uh, in other ways. Uh, that said, you know, we know that there are 1,400 fewer broker-dealers today than there were in 2010 and the number of new RIAs that are being created is like in the six, 700 range every year. So I think that indicates to you that there's movement there. We also see client assets moving in that direction. Uh, the 
the RIA segment has grown $3 trillion uh, over the last uh, four years, which is pretty significant. So it's about a $7 trillion profession. That said, the broker-dealers that continue to reinvent are saying, my business has changed from a product sale business to a planning-oriented business. And their corporate RAs, the, the fiduciary business models that they support, are also growing exponentially. So we know that uh, having this approach to the business is really uh, oftentimes market-driven. And the good news is that the, the broker-dealers and the insurance companies that perceive that they're delivering value to the clients are adapting to the change. Some of it is a little late, but the fact that they're adapting recognizes that there's a, there's a market to be had. I think what we're seeing is less emphasis on, on professional selling and more uh, emphasis on professional buying, meaning that it isn't so much being a product advocate as being a client advocate. That's generally good for the industry and for the profession of financial planning. And, uh, and there are advantages in both cases as to which model you want to affiliate with. You know, you talk about all of the different places that we, you can start your career. Uh, you know, wirehouses, BDs, RAs, there, there's, and there's way, even more than that. All of these places are developing out these career paths, right? I mean, this seems to be an across-the-board theme. Yes, I think that's true. And I think also for individuals, they shouldn't assume that it's a life sentence once they get hired. Uh, you know, I've had seven careers, and I know a lot of other people who've moved around and doing different things. So you have to say, what is my goal? What do I, what do I want to accomplish with this uh, particular phase of my life? And if it's mastering the job, finding the right firm that's committed to doing that would be a good decision to make. Uh, you know, people who are open to bringing on new people and training and developing them is a great thing. And if you say, you know, that was so good, I'm going to stay, fantastic. If it wasn't so good, then feel free to move on. But, you know, having, having the ability to establish your own individual reputation uh, is actually a good talent strategy for yourself. You've got to take control of your destiny, uh, not in a selfish way, but be conscious that you're developing your own personal brand. And what does that look like? Several years ago, I saw your name in the news and I was very interested um, in this idea of reverse mentoring that your firm at, at Pershing had started. And we've had Kayla Kenley, who is part of that program, on the podcast before. But I'm curious to hear your perspective of what, first of all, what is reverse mentoring? And then how did that get started at Pershing? The concept of reverse mentoring goes back uh, a number of years, I think GE may have been the first company to do it, and many people have talked about it. Uh, what happened was, um, I don't recall what year, but one of, uh, one of my fellow partners at Pershing uh, saw that as we were sitting around the executive committee that uh, it was mostly middle-aged, uh, mostly male. Uh, we had uh, a couple of women who were on the EC, uh, and mostly people have shared experiences about the industry and what we're doing. And uh, this was also a time of transition for our company. And so he, uh, he on his own initiative, uh, brought together a couple of his key employees, Kayla being one of them, uh, Jamie Lynch Mino being the other, and said, let's come up with an idea that could be transformative to how we create real employee engagement and transformation for the business. And so they introduced the idea of reverse mentoring. And uh, the pilot was with members of the executive committee where they were going to assign uh, a reverse mentor to them. The reverse mentors were selected. There was a vetting process as to who could qualify to do it. And the understanding was that uh, after the reverse mentors met with the mentees, the, the older executives, that they were going to meet once a month, talk about the issues, and see what else they want to learn. And out of that would come recommendations to, to the board. So from my standpoint, it's one of the most um, enlightening experiences of my life. Uh, I've always considered myself to be a listener and empathetic, but, uh, but sometimes you take things for granted. And so Kayla was my first reverse mentor. I've had four. And we don't want to have it a perpetual relationship, so every 12 to 18 months it rotates. And it's important that they not work uh, for you, that they 
uh, are accountable or reporting to someone else so that you don't create any uh, conflict. So um, Kayla went through a process with me where she created a list of possibilities of what we might talk about. And what we agreed is that uh, technology was not one of the things I wanted to be mentored on. Uh, it's not that I'm a master technologist, but that was not the power of the relationship. The power of the relationship is, Kayla, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are your friends observing? Uh, uh, what should I know about uh, your peers and the career choices they're making? Uh, or the or the business choices or the personal financial choices they're making. And it was the ability to get insight from individuals in a way that I wouldn't normally have a conversation. And some people say, I get the benefit of that for my children, but it's still a different conversation. And at this discipline meeting where we'd have this, this idea, I think is one reason why uh, we've grown so dramatically. I mean, Pershing... Pershing, uh, since 2010, has grown a trillion dollars of assets, uh, and um, and that and so you got to say, well, something worked, and I think that reverse mentoring was part of it. Well, it's interesting because you said, you know, that this was when it was pitched, it was very much viewed as could this be a transformational element for the firm, and so you you think that it has been. I think it was a real gut check on all of us yeah. who may have had uh, bias uh, or judgment about things without really asking the question. And I think when you have somebody like Kayla saying, you know, I think that's BS, uh, I think that there's another, and having the permission to say it yeah. is is very powerful. And it, you know, checks you instead of just plowing through with something is that it, it you know, when somebody can say honestly that I disagree with you or would you consider this approach, it's a very refreshing and stimulating way to think about the business. So a lot of your assumptions you said were challenges. I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what did you learn through that process? Several things uh, I learned uh, would be, first among them would be the way in which to communicate. Yeah. Um, uh, I, think, uh, I think there's a tendency in a boss-employee relationship for the boss to talk as the wise old man and the employee to just endure. Uh, and I think now it's more about how you have genuine exchanges of ideas that uh, for all intents and purposes, you're equals. Uh, you may not be equals in compensation and rank, but you're equals in that moment about how you're having a conversation. And that's a different style of managing than in the past. I think the second thing that occurs is uh, our business is going through transformation because new generations uh, of uh, employees and clients are coming into force. Uh, new demographics in many different ways are coming into force. And if you don't have genuine exposure to uh, different demographics, then you're going to continue to make stupid decisions about them. And I think that that was forceful in terms of the enlightenment. Uh, and in fact, I think, frankly, that's pushed me to do many things around diversity and inclusion in the industry uh, because it was so personally fulfilling and emotionally satisfying that it really exposed me to thinking about a broader world than I probably did before. So there are right around 5,000 new CFPs every year now as they're entering into financial planning, entering into the investment or into the financial services industry. What would be your advice to them? I think the first thing that I would say is take responsibility for who you work with. Don't assume that, that you're the only one um, that is looking for a solution here that the employers want to have good candidates, but you should be making a choice as to whether or not it represents what you want. So be free to ask questions that reveal that. And it may be about culture. It may be about other people with your experiences or background. It may be about how they develop the career. And take notes of this because uh, you want to ask questions and you want to evaluate whether or not it was a truthful experience within, within that process. I think, uh, secondly, you should take a look at the dynamics of the firm itself. Uh, are, they, are they demonstrating success? Are they growing? Are people developing? Do they have examples of, uh, of individuals who started fresh and moved into new positions? Could you meet them? Would you have a chance to uh, encounter others uh, in the firm? Uh, I think third is uh, see if their uh, hiring process, you know, the number of people you meet, is whether or not they've included diverse enough people in that hiring process 
uh, that will tell you a lot about the business because uh, I think that will be revealing there. Uh, so come in with questions, don't come in with just answers. If somebody says to you, okay, uh, uh, I've now asked you 20 questions, uh, now, now what questions do you have for me? Uh, and this has happened quite a few times, I can't even tell you how many times I've gone through this. And they said, oh, well, I have nothing. I've checked you out online. Uh, and it's like, well, that was about as unfulfilling as can be. And, uh, and to me, they're just kind of off the list. It's like, I have no interest. If you have no curiosity at all, then I have no interest. So treat me like a prospect, because that's what I am. So what are you most excited about right now? About life, you mean generally? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, uh, you know, I have a, I have a very fulfilling life. Um, I have a great relationship with my wife. We've been married 36 years. Uh, we spend our time on both coasts in New York and, and Seattle. We traveled a lot. Uh, we love music. Uh, we love to dance. Uh, so we enjoy our lives together. And when we're together, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Um, I uh, enjoy what I'm doing for a living. I enjoy the company that we've uh, helped to transform into a new business model. Uh, I think that uh, it's really, I never envisioned working for part of a bank uh, in anywhere in my career. I started in small business and got to this point. Uh, but uh, it's, it's something that has enriched me in ways that I can't, I can't believe. Uh, uh, I enjoy the opportunity to have conversations like this with people who are uh, the future leaders of this business uh, that will transform the way in which uh, the, the communities of clients will want to value the profession. And if, uh, if I can continue to work with people who have the same passion that you do or that Kayla does, uh, who really want to make a lasting impact, uh, I want to be there to support this however I can. So those things excite me. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.